0: HD Insights podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Genentech, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, Unicure. Vasinex, and Wave Life Sciences.
1: Hello, and thank you for listening to the HD Insights Podcast. I'm Kevin Gregory, Senior Director of Education and Communications at the Huntington Study Group, and your host for this episode. Today, you'll meet and hear from Dr. Michael Hayden, Chief Executive Officer for Prolenia Therapeutics and a Killam Professor at the University of British Columbia. Prolenia is sponsor for the currently active Proof HD Trial, a global study evaluating the efficacy and safety of prodopidine in patients with early stage of Huntington disease. Dr. Hayden will talk about this new study and its unique endpoint around total functional capacity. You'll also want to hear his inspiring personal journey that led him into Huntington disease research while growing up in South Africa. So without any further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. Michael Hayden. Before we get started, I I wanted to first welcome you to the HD Insights podcast, and and thank you for taking the time to join us for this episode today.
2: Well, thank you for this privilege and opportunity uh, to be part of this.
1: Dr. Hayden, there's a lot of buzz and excitement surrounding one of the latest clinical studies for Huntington disease, which is the Proof HD study, which your company, Prolenia is sponsoring. We'll certainly get into more of the study specifics, but if you don't mind, I'd really like to start by having you explain what makes this study so unique and important to the HD community.
2: Well, I think that this is an important study with a drug that's easily taken, an oral drug, that has been shown now in about 1,300 patients to be safe and tolerable, similar to placebo, uh, and a drug that's already shown in prior studies uh, in a subset of patients, so in patients who have early Huntington disease, uh, to have potential impact on maintaining their functional capacity. And just to mention about functional capacity, because, um, of course, patients with Huntington disease have numerous signs and symptoms, personality change, involuntary movements. But what upsets and really causes most consternation to patients is the relentless progression of this disease. They lose the ability to function. They lose the ability to hug their children and grandchildren. They lose the ability to continue employment. And it's the, the opportunity to assess whether the drug has impact on their functional capacity represents a major opportunity. So this is really, uh, and the FDA and all the regulatory agencies have now recognized that total functional capacity is a acceptable single endpoint in late phase clinical trials. And they've recognized it and there's been evolution in the regulatory authorities because they've listened to the voice of patients. And they've listened. They had a voice of patients day in 2015. Prior to that, they had wanted either motor as the endpoint or combined endpoints of motor and function. But after hearing that, uh, the voice of patients about what really concerned them, and that was really to stay functional, to be able to continue doing their daily activities, riding their bikes, participating in family life, the FDA made functional capacity and accepted this as a single primary endpoint in clinical trials. This was an evolution. And now for late stage clinical development, late stage being phase three or even uh, late stage two, this TFC or total functional capacity is accepted as a endpoint and a validated endpoint. TFC has a long history discovered essentially, initially put forward by Farn and scholston Irish Ira Schulsten, in the early eighties, developed further and modified and further uh, 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 described by Karl Kiebitz. So, and we've learned a lot about total functional capacity. We know how it decreases over time. We know that this is particularly useful for patients with early Huntington disease where it measures the ability to function at home activities of daily living it measures who takes care of you it measures how you're able to continue with your finances it also measures whether you still employed or have some decrease of employment and all of this gives an assessment an objective assessment of function this is now accepted and is the uh, single endpoint in our own trial uh, at Prolenia, but of course, is the endpoint also in the United States in the Roche trial for antisense therapy.
1: Well, I appreciate that explanation. I want to dive a little bit deeper into that if we can. I know Korea um, tends to be one of the most widely associated symptoms that people are familiar with, with, with Huntington disease. And you've talked about the importance of functional capacity and impact on quality of life. Um, in terms of this trial, and I guess in, in terms of uh, assessing total functional capacity as a whole, can you explain for those listening that may not be fully aware of it, how, how do you go about assessing um, one's functional capacity, you know, through the course of the study or, you know, applying those um, assessments or measurements that you spoke of?
2: Well, total fun, thank you, Kevin. Uh, total functional capacity has five components. And they measured uh, at normal function would be a three. And as you go down, you would go down to two or one or zero. So you would, and there are specific careful questions that are asked to the patient and often a caregiver together as to what the level of function is. Generally, uh, in the general population and when people start off with the earliest signs of Huntington disease, you have a score of around 13. But as you progress, this goes down from 13 and usually in early Huntington disease, it goes down around one a year. And of course, um, this is measured annually. uh, And so you go down one a year and therefore you have to wait a year to assess that particular endpoint. And the reason you want to wait a year, and that's why studies really won't have the power to detect this in a much shorter time, is that patients on placebo, you have to have a window against which you can detect whether your drug has any effect. So in one year for the earliest Huntington's patients, you go down about one, and then you can see whether your drug has slowed down or maintained the functional capacity over one year. It's good to have long-term follow-up because you wanna see if this improvement or maintenance of functional capacity is maintained. And that's why often for these studies, there's an open label extension that allows you to see whether this is durable. The good news for us is that in early patients with Huntington disease, we have shown that the functional capacity may be maintained uh, in patients on this drug called predopidine. And we've learned a lot. There's been tremendous evolution of thinking around predopidine. And we've also shown uh, that in an independent measure, a placebo-independent measure of movement, which is a machine that measures, for example, how quickly you tap and how you do alternating movements of the hands, that there also appears to be an improvement and less deterioration in patients with early HD. So this trial, termed proof, is designed to assess and and answer the question clearly with all the pre-specified endpoints, taking everything we've learnt uh, from prior studies, and these prior studies have helped us to determine the dose, the duration, the most important endpoints uh, at the, for this particular study, and this is now ongoing. Proof means predopidine outcome, assessment of outcome in Huntington disease, so outcome of function, so it's proof outcome of function, that's P-R-O-O-F, in an effort to see whether this can be replicated, whether the early signs in a phase two study could be replicated in phase three, so that if replicated, this drug would then be available orally for patients, hopefully globally, in an effort to see if there's some way to slow down the progression of this illness. And this is the excitement around this. The early data, as we've understood, all aspects of this, and we understand the mechanism of action now, much more detailed. We understand issues of the response to different doses. We understand why we've chosen this particular dose, why are we are choosing patients with early HD? Uh, and so the trial is ongoing. The trial will be in 60 sites, 30 in North America, including Canada, and 30 in Europe. And we're delighted to have the endorsement from the European Huntington Disease Network, EHDN, uh, which uh, has formally endorsed the study after careful and diligent review. We're working with the HSG, which is the only CRO in the world that focuses exclusively on Huntington disease. And we're working with 60 sites around the world. The principal investigators of the study are Andy Fagan in the US, uh, who is also the chair of the HSG, and Ralph Riemann in uh, in Munster, who has such uh, extensive experience in Huntington disease and clinical trials. And they are supported as co-PIs by Anne Rosser, who's the chair of the European Huntington Disease Network, and Sandra Kostic, who is a very well-established investigator and neurologist, running the clinic in Ohio, in Ohio State University.
1: That's a very experienced team that you have put together, and um, I, I do want to go back to you know some of the points that you touched on in, in terms of um, the design and the focus of the endpoints for this trial. I know Proof HD is kind of born out of the results from the Pride HD study um, that you talked about, which I believe was a phase two study. What is the connection between Pride HD and Proof HD specifically in terms of what you learned from Pride and, and how you've um, applied it to Proof HD? And, and not necessarily just from the standpoint of results, but also um, you mentioned the timing of the FDA um, establishing total functional capacity as an endpoint. I, I, I'm curious, was that, uh, I, I'm assuming pride began before the FDA made that change. Was that, uh, you know, how much did that factor into what you saw from results and in terms of where you're taking this proof HD study now?
2: Yes. So I joined Tether in, at the end of 2012 and I was already interested to look at predopidine essentially based on what we knew then we thought this was a primarily a dopamine modulator and dopamine similar to l-dopa in parkinson's is really having impact on movement and when we brought this into tether uh, we were interested in seeing whether this drug, looking at its impact on movement but as the study progressed we learned that its primary mechanism of action appeared to be not dopamine modulation, and we've now proven that in imaging studies, but rather sigma-1 activation. Now, sigma-1 activation is associated with neuroprotection. And if you wanted to see if there was any impact on that, you would have to have these patients be followed for longer to look at functional capacity, TFC. So what we did is we extended the study which was essentially initially mostly focused on movement but to be extended to 52 weeks where we would know that at 52 weeks TFC if on a placebo group would decline and we may have a chance to see a window of effect. And that's what we learned. The FDA had already suggested to us that we should also look at multiple doses And that was very helpful because we were able to determine the right dose for patients uh, uh, for this particular study based on total functional capacity. What we learned from it is that, and just recently published in the Journal of Huntington Disease, is that predopidine, in this post hoc analysis showed some effect to maintain functional capacity compared to placebo. That was the first time That this has ever been shown in any analysis for any drug. This was exciting and it was a result of that that I really chose to spend my time and focus my time. On trying to assess in a formal all very rigorous pre specified study whether this drug has can be shown to have impact on functional capacity in HD and this is really what we're doing now Korea. Of course, I was committed to doing everything I could for patients and families with Huntington disease. And of course, we knew that tetrabenazine, another drug, had been used for Korea. And I was able to bring in another drug called into Tava, which then we took through to be approved as the second drug ever to be approved for Huntington disease for treatment of Korea. Uh, And that is a different mechanism that is focused on dopamine. It actually decreases presynaptic dopamine levels and has impact and is now the second approved drug. What we're doing from pride and now into proof is really looking at functional capacity. So some of the motor signs are endpoints and secondary endpoints, but the primary focus is to see whether we can maintain functional capacity, keep patients working, keep patients at home, keep patients taking care of themselves, keep them performing the activities of daily living on a daily basis. And you know my philosophy is that, uh, of, and it's not just mine, it's many people in this field who have made such amazing contributions, is these patients depend on us. And whilst one doesn't want does not want to raise undue hopes and undue expectations. This is why we do phase three clinical trials where we learn as much as we can from prior trials and then design this as efficiently and effectively as we can in an effort to see whether those early signs can now be replicated in a formal phase three placebo controlled trial that would then lead to potential approval in the face of compelling results. And that's what we're committed to do. And I was committed to making sure that we could raise support to do this, which we did. Uh, and this has al- allowed us to now test this hypothesis in this phase three clinical trial.
1: Yeah, I'm always amazed to hear about how these trials and, and treatments develop. But just one quick follow-up, when you observed the improvement in total functional capacity from the phase two trial was, you, you mentioned it was very exciting. Was it a surprise or did you have some inkling going in that that could be a potential benefit, but more unsure at the time?
2: I would say, you know, I had heard anecdotally from many patients who'd been on the trial that um, that they had shown some improvement, and but this was anecdotally, and the placebo response is always great, and you could never differentiate between this. So I would say I was quite surprised, and also surprised that in general, these patients maintained their pre-treatment functional level after one year as a group. There were some who actually showed improvement. There were some who showed mild deterioration, but overall, They maintained their function after one year, which was different to the control. So this was surprising. The extent of this was surprising. Of course, important to know, this was also a post hoc analysis. So we got hints, but realized this needed to be replicated in a formal phase three study, which is what we're now doing. Just remember this is an oral drug that has such an excellent safety and tolerability profile that uh, of course allows easy administration. The European regulatory authorities and the Americans have provided uh, orphan drug status. And we know our key here is to make sure this drug is readily, if successful, readily available throughout the world. And the administration of an oral drug in this way becomes very feasible uh, to do this. And so, you know, when I left Teva, I was able to take this with me. Um, And it was really great because the people that had worked on this for five, six years actually came to the company initially for three, four months at no salary because they believed and had seen something and believed this was something worth doing. Also to say later, just after a few months, uh, Mass General and Harvard Medical School had received a donation at the Healy Center for ALS. And we had some preclinical data showing that this drug may have similar effects in ALS. And they actually had an international competition. There were greater than 30 applicants. And again, to my surprise, we were chosen to be funded by them to run an ALS study, which is now being conducted through Mass General Hospital and Harvard but throughout 30 sites in the US. So at the moment, we have two trials ongoing. Patients have been randomized to both, an ALS study coordinated through the Healy Center at Mass General and led by Merit Kudkiewicz. And in addition, uh, the Huntington study led by the four investigators that we spoke about before. So this is a drug that appears to have beneficial effects around protecting neurons Uh, whatever the insult might be and so ALS is an example also Huntington disease and of course if you want to if you're trying to protect neurons you want to treat them before they've died you want to treat them if you're trying to stop a fire taking care of a house you don't want the house to be burnt down you want the house to be early so you can protect it and that's why treating early becomes effective because there is still Uh, injured neurons, but not dead neurons, and perhaps this drug could further protect against undergoing neurons. So we don't know all of this, although the preclinical data and the animal data would suggest this, but we're doing the trial now looking at the endpoints to see if this uh, could be uh, replicated in a formal phase three pivotal trial.
1: Well, that's, a, that's a good information to build on from there. So taking that to its natural next step, what are the most critical factors for participating um, in, in Proof HD? What are the inc- key inclusion criteria that a participant would have to meet? And, and what are some of the critical criteria that, that might exclude someone from being enrolled in the study?
2: Yeah, well, thank you for that great question. So the key is to have patients with early Huntington disease, and this is defined. Huntington disease is staged by TFC, which looks at level of function, and we have patients from seven to thirteen. Thirteen being close to normal, normal actually, and uh, and seven going down to early to mild to moderate Huntington disease. We also are including patients twenty-five years and above. And the reason is that patients with juvenile very early Huntington disease may have a more progressive course. And that would need to have a separate study to assess that. So patients are 25 and above because if they had onset at 20 or 19 or 18 or 17, these patients would probably be more advanced and wouldn't be eligible based on the TFC inclusion criteria. We also have no upper age limit, so patients who fulfill the criteria and have molecularly, genetically defined CAG of 36 and above, and also have the appropriate TFC, can participate in the study up to any age. And that's also important. Exclusion would be patients who are more advanced. At this point, we really are excluding patients in stage three and stage four. And these are patients who are more advanced. To assess whether this drug has impact on more advanced patients, we'd need a separate clinical trial to really look at these patients. In terms of TFC, they decline much slower over time with advanced Huntington disease. And so there you'd need a longer study with more patients and that would have to come later where we really wanna look primarily at those patients with early HD. So this is a trial that has broad inclusion criteria. It's not a hassle to take it. We only have a few visits that have to be in person, screening, baseline and week. We're going to week 65. Um, and that just gives a little bit more time for the placebo group to deteriorate. So there's a window to detect the effect. They will be open label extension after that Um, And this will be, and we're hoping that people, not only in the sites that have been designated, but in regions around the sites. For example, in Austria, there's only one site, but there are many other sites in Austria where patients could come from in a relatively small geographic country. And so patients from other centers could also be enrolled and particularly in other parts of Europe as well, uh, the Netherlands and potentially Spain where there are just a few sites, but people could be enrolled into those sites from other regions as well. So the study uh, has broad inclusion criteria, exclusion criteria, you can be, uh, for example, on the antisense or the hunting lowering trials. Uh, you could have been on that at least six months before and you can still be part of the study. You can be on tetrabenazine or steto because we don't believe this has uh, any impact. Our drug is not expected to have impact on Korea. So these drugs work in different ways uh, and would have different effects and both may be advantageous. Uh, And so the the criteria are easy easy to administer. We recognize that COVID uh, is still present and raging in many parts and we have a mitigation for COVID where a a lot of the assessments like TFC can be done by telephone. But the key endpoint, which is 65 weeks uh, compared to baseline, uh, this needs to be done in person. And hopefully uh, by the time patients reach that endpoint, uh, the COVID uh, prevention strategies and vaccinations and other measures will be in place so that all patients could come at least in person for the 65-week visit.
1: Yeah, I mean, COVID has definitely changed a lot of things, and I, was, I, I wanted to ask you about that, how that may have impacted the study. I, I guess my question um, around that would be, it, it sounds like this trial was Uh, You know, has been designed in a way that made it fairly flexible to begin with, or has it become flexible as a result of the pandemic, or a combination of the two? I guess
2: because because TFC is a slowly progressive measure, um, you know whether patients come on the exact day we schedule them or one or two weeks on either side does not really matter. So, firstly, there is some flexibility. Secondly. COVID certainly uh, uh, forced us to consider other measures where in-clinic visits were not absolutely essential. And uh, we've looked at all the measures uh, and and really have uh, included phone visits. We have ways to deliver the drugs to patients to have blood withdrawn for various assessments. We're looking at biomarkers in the blood as well to have a biomarker for progression, uh, which we're also looking at. And so I'd say the trial has diminished the burden on patients. We're also not requiring a caretaker or somebody who takes care of these patients to come with them. It's preferable, but it's not required. That's another important measure that gives more flexibility. Um, and, And that's because we're looking at early patients. And these are patients generally who are still very functional in terms of their community involvement.
1: With the, Dr. Hayden, with the excitement of of new clinical trials, such as Proof HD, I know hitting enrollment totals is certainly critical to the study outcomes. And one of the things you mentioned was that because you're assessing total functional capacity, you need a longer duration. And so someone may hear 65 weeks and think, wow, that's a really long time to be involved in this. Remaining in the study through its conclusion has a huge impact on on not just the study results, but the benefits uh, of a treatment to the entire HD community. I guess in your experience as a researcher, can you talk about what retention means and its importance for clinical trials such as proof?
2: Well, that's such a crucial question. And I would say remaining in the study is absolutely crucial, even if for whatever reason, the patient is no longer taking the drug. Uh, and so because missing data penalizes the study, necessitates other uh, uh, statistical analyses that diminish the power of the study to see an effect. So we are really wanting patients to stay in the study, to stay uh, the course, and to contribute to this research that could have impact long term uh, uh, in every way. Uh, And so we learn a lot from clinical trials, whether successful or sadly, whether they fail. We learn about clinical progression. We learn about biomarkers. We learn about um, uh, what works and what uh, endpoints are really measurable. So we learn a lot. That's of great value to the community, whatever the outcome. Of course, here we're hoping for a positive outcome, uh, but this will, the opportunity to assess it will be enhanced by patients staying in the study. Retention is critical, because from a statistical point of view, you are penalized quite significantly for missing data. And even if the patient is doing better, sometimes through some analyses, you have to give the patient placebo measurements that diminishes the power and strength of the study. So we wanna encourage all everybody to stay in the study as a community, participation to really uh, uh, participate, contribute to the overall uh, involvement, uh, because that becomes very important in the assessment. It's not that long. We need a minimum of a year to have an assessment. We've gone just a little longer on the encouragement of investigators to give us, give ourselves the best shot to assess whether this drug has is able, to slow or decrease the, the, or maintain the TFC over this particular period.
0: We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights Podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, info at or by calling toll-free at 1-800-487-7671. We greatly appreciate your support. And now, back to our episode.
1: We're here with Dr. Hayden on the HD Insights podcast. And Dr. Hayden, I'd like to switch gears now, uh, if I can, and and talk to you a little bit about your your experience and your background. I know you have extensive involvement in research and development of products for disorders. Um, Specifically, I think you've authored approximately 900 peer-reviewed publications and invited submissions. And you've led the approval of, I think, some 35 new products to market. So how did it all start for a young Michael Hayden? What, What drove you to get into this specific line of work?
2: Well, you know, I grew up in South Africa, um, and I was always interested in families uh, and what happens in families. And I started as a medical student intern, seeing my first patients with Huntington's disease. And these were patients of color, patients of mixed descent. And in those days, uh, part of the uh, assessment of these patients was visiting them in their home. And I visited patients in the home who were disenfranchised by apartheid, disenfranchised by this disease, lived in absolute poverty, often tin shacks, uh, in different townships around Cape Town. And I was moved by firstly, how little was known about this disease, but I was also moved by despite the poverty, the dignity and the honor and the warmth and the generosity of spirit, that these families uh, displayed. They inspired me. I was reminded of of words from Robert Kennedy when he came to South Africa and spoke about uh, about being contained uh, in in various forms of oppression. And I saw that this disease was also oppressive for these patients. Um, But they bore it with great courage and dignity And then I started looking in the literature and I saw that Huntington disease was thought not to exist in Africa. There had been three or four or five articles on Huntington disease out of 54 countries in Africa. And this was in the late 70s, early 80s. And I said, this is what I'll do my PhD thesis on. And I traveled around the country, saw thousands of patients in many hospitals, saw families and raised awareness of Huntington disease in South Africa. I also realized these patients needed an organization. So I helped to work to catalyze the first uh, organization for patients. By the way, the first multiracial clinic at the place where the first heart transplant had happened at Khutuskir Hospital in Cape Town. We had the first multiracial clinic taking care of patients as a whole. And I need that, and I saw that these patients needed help and needed hope. And I ended up being invited to go to a talk in the late 70s uh, in uh, San Diego in international honey. And I spoke about honey disease in Africa, in particular South Africa. And that's where I met Marjorie Guthrie. And Marjorie Guthrie, the founder of HDSA, we spoke, and Marjorie became a beloved confidant, friend and i explained to marjorie that politically i was really not in great shape in south africa i was already had already been detained and marjorie said to me we need you in america and i explained that if i could come to america i would need a green card and marjorie enrolled and was able to get ted kennedy senator kennedy to persuade to write my letter to the ins to get me a green card But he had one condition and his condition was that I go to Boston. I had to say on where is Boston, is it on the east or the west coast because I knew nothing about it and uh, I then knew and was able to take up my fellowship at Children's Hospital in Boston in 1980. Marjorie remained a close source of inspiration and it's because of Marjorie that I am in North America and was able to really participate in the early days of genetics then. But my commitment to families was cemented uh, right in the beginning, right when I was a medical student intern. And as a result of that, my commitment was firstly to define the bit, to the best I can uh, what causes this disease, what are the cellular and molecular mechanisms, but that was never enough. I really wanted to be able to translate that into places and ways that we could help patients. I was involved in the earliest phases of predictive testing. In 1986, we did that in Vancouver, and then also participated in clinical trials. And when I eventually was recruited to TAVA, I was able to continue that commitment by bringing more and getting this approved as the second drug ever approved for Huntington disease in the United States. That commitment, because patients need us, and need us in the best way possible, is really what also forced me to encourage me to do the proof study, only because there were some signs that suggested that this may work. There is no definite uh, guarantee, but it was worth a proper formalized clinical trial, and I ended up helping to form this company, bringing people with me in an effort to be involved in this. Of course, in Vancouver, we have uh, we were also setting up the first Hunnic disease medical clinic. Training people has been important, from Jeff Carroll to Blair Lever to many others, uh, Nando Skateri, people from in and around Europe and the United States, 150 people have been through the lab and many of them have continued to be committed to Hunnic disease. Recognizing the urgent patient need, the terrible suffering, the devastation that families go through and and our uh, desire to do whatever we can to try and uh, alleviate and contribute in whatever way we can to this suffering. So this is very much being a life's work uh, and I'm committed to seeing what we can do to see if this drug has any effect. And at the same time, continue to explore basic mechanisms that may may open up additional points for therapy for patients in need.
1: That is a fascinating journey. I'm so glad to to hear that whole story, um, Dr. Hayden. I mean, I know I've seen you know your your biographies, but you know to hear that story about coming out of South Africa. If you don't mind, just a quick follow up on that. Have you been back in, in recent years? I'm just curious to see how things have changed um, for the Huntington disease community there, how they've evolved since you first got there and saw how you know um, isolating uh, it was and oppressive it was for the community on top of other oppression they, they were already dealing with socially, economically, um, and, and how that looks today.
2: Well, I would say for patients with Huntington disease, it's not a happy situation. The, the country uh, is gripped in both political and, uh, and uh, poverty. Uh, many of these patients suffer from this. There are many issues around patients with disability that need formal, more legal protection, uh, uh, similar to what we see in the United States and Canada and parts of Europe. I would say it's uh, the the burden of taking care of patients destined to be ill, but not yet ill is still uh, an issue. When we developed predictive testing, we immediately offered this with the counseling and support to South Africa. And this was done. We did this through the University of Cape Town, but now University of Witwatersrand. We had a student from there who came to us here in Vancouver has gone back, who's playing a role in research uh, at the, uh, at, uh, in, in molecular genetics there, uh, but the family foundations are still not that strong. Uh, they are split in all kinds of ways, also not fully integrated, so I would say it's got a long way to go. Um, we also discovered that Huntington's disease is less common in persons of Black descent Um, But it's equally as frequent in Persians of mixed and and, uh, Caucasian descent similar to the rest of the world. So the disease is very prevalent in significant parts of the population. um, And we're just learning to understand why the disease is less frequent in certain populations. And that's also been seen in the United States uh, where there are differential frequencies in populations of different descent, for example, the disease is also less frequent in Japan.
1: I'm I'm curious, and then kind of kind of building off some of what you covered there, um, you've seen an evolution in research and treatments. How do you see Huntington disease care and treatments evolving in the next five to ten years? And would you say, is that consistent with how you might have assessed the situation five or 10 years ago? Like, did did you foresee things being where they are today? Did you see them being further along? Do you think we still have some catching up to do? What What are your overall thoughts on where we are and where we'll be going in the near future?
2: Well, I mean, I'm very encouraged. I'd say for the first time, this disease has attracted investment from the pharmaceutical industry and the biotech industry at a profound level. You know, when you look at Huntington disease and you look at the frequency, this is not such a rare disease. Um, If you look at all people involved. So if you take about 100,000, 40,000 the US, 40,000 Europe, about 20,000 the rest of the world, that's 100,000. And then you look for every person affected, there's somewhere between three and four people destined to be ill and not yet ill. So that's another, say, 300,000. In total, 400,000. Well, that's the same uh, frequency as multiple sclerosis. Uh, so if you look at the people affected from this devastating genetic disease, in truth, uh, it, it's, 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 it's not infrequent. And I think that has been recognized as an opportunity for multiple sclerosis. They're 20 drugs approved for those 400,000 people and still further improvements in care coming. In Huntington disease, there is nothing approved for this. The exciting thing is that this is attracting investment and attention. Biotech and pharma, they're now 10, 12, 15 trials ongoing. Of course, Huntington lowering represents a very important approach uh, uh, to uh, trying to eliminate the cause of the disease. And it's likely in the future that there will be combination therapies where you treat some of the cellular effects. Uh, You may treat also Huntington lowering. um, And hopefully there'll be approaches that are both intrathecal, giving it into the spinal cord, but hopefully in the long-term oral therapies that make it easier and more accessible for patients around the world. I'm optimistic. The disease has attracted attention like never before. We're making progress. But I do believe we need to have multiple flowers bloom. We have no guarantee of success with any one measure and any one intervention. And in the end, combination therapy may be necessary. So we need to let multiple flowers bloom. We need to support multiple approaches. Uh, for treating both symptoms as well as treating, hopefully, the course of the illness. But I do believe within five, seven years, we will have alternate therapies that have the potential to slow down the, uh, the deterioration in functional capacity and offer great hope for patients. Of course, the eventual approach would be not only secondary prevention, not only treating patients who are already affected, but rather treating patients destined to be ill, but not yet ill. People who are close to onset, what we call prodromal HD. So you're treating people at the time where you can provide most protection, hopefully slow down onset of disease and give people an improved quality of life for a much longer period. I don't talk of cure. I don't think there are cures here, but there are ways to slow down progression slow down the deterioration. And there are many different approaches that are taking being taken. And I think we should celebrate those different approaches and look forward to some of them being successful in the future and potentially looking at combination therapies that offer the greatest hope for patients.
1: In keeping with that theme about um, pharma and biotech and having a number of different flowers bloom to attack and address symptoms or, or the causes of, of Huntington disease uh, can you talk a little bit about your role at Prelenia? what led you to that and and you know what is your what, what is the the overall goal and focus of the organization
2: yeah so I prelenia which comes from PRI which is predopidine, and lenia which comes from the Greek to soothe or to cure I think it's an aspiration it's an aspiration that Uh, we can have some impact on soothing uh, some aspects of this disease and potentially others as well. So uh, I accepted the role of being CEO for this company, uh, certainly to see to the end of these particular trials, but my goal is not just to support this company. I sit on the board of directors of IONUS and I'm very much supportive of Huntington Lowering Therapies. I'm supportive of multiple approaches uh, because there's no guarantee which of these will work. And we hear we have to be intellectually promiscuous in an effort to really see the right effect. For Prolenia itself, uh, whilst predopidine is the first product, there are other products that act on these pathways that appear to be very intriguing in terms of offering some hope uh, that have impact on some other proteins that certainly uh, Prelenia would be interested in bringing in, even in combination therapies, in an effort to see the effects, not only in Huntington disease, but ALS, also Parkinson's, potentially other forms of neurodegeneration, as well as also the impact of this particular agonism on other neurodevelopment disorders, such as Rett syndrome and fragile X syndrome, for which there is already quite a lot of data. So, Uh, I see this as an opportunity to uh, explore this particular area of tremendous unmet need. Uh, Hunnic disease can serve as a model. If we were able to show some impact here on TFC, there is the potential to look at other diseases we already in preclinical models. We already have shown some beneficial effects, but one step at a time. Let's rigorously implement the trial for this disease. We're activating sites. We're on track despite COVID. We've had a tremendously enthusiastic response from the community. And we're looking forward to implementing this with the rigor together with the ALS program, which already has had the first patient randomized to pridopidine as part of that study.
1: Uh, and now, and you're also an educator by nature and practice in your role with the uh, University of British Columbia. What is it about teaching that you found to be the most rewarding? and And also, I would ask you, you know for for young folks listening, what advice would you offer someone who's thinking about going into Huntington Disease Research?
2: Well, for me, the biggest privilege, you know is uh, having had the opportunity to train. Uh, uh, people who, from whom I learn, you know, essentially my students and postdocs end up teaching me a lot in many ways. So, and I've been able to give them a perspective, not to lose faith Uh, when they are knocked down by results. uh, We all get knocked down by results, but finding ways to stay resilient, be courageous. My advice to them is ask big questions give yourselves the opportunity to see what is the best result that you can see from this study? And is it worth you giving up nights and weekends away from family and friends to do this? And if the answer is no, then you have to find a question that's worth, that's big enough, that warrants the commitment that's needed. Find something and also just recognize science matters. Science uh, uh, solves problems. Sci- we can solve problems through science. That's how we make advances. More and and so beautifully demonstrated through the development of novel vaccines. Well, we can answer fundamental questions and it's a real privilege to be involved. So I'm really committed to continuing to support graduate students and postdocs and others in an effort to continue to explore. But for me also, it's a wonderful learning experience. I'm. Uh, many of my students and postdocs have become personal lifelong friends because we are, ju- we are journeyers on the same travel. We are there trying to do whatever we can in an effort to have some impact on questions that matter. And that's the, And that's my focus to individuals to ask yourselves, if you had a positive result, would this be important? Would this be, does this add value? Or is this just some replication? And helping them to be courageous, to stand and supported by their data, uh, to represent and be the representative of patients. And what we see in our own lab, we have a lab where we have patient days. They're coming in numerous times a year. We built up a a tissue and DNA repository with 8,000 DNA samples and over 300 tissues from patients with Huntington disease. We wanna continue to use those which have served our own research, but also make them available to the community that many people can have access to these precious samples. And we're delighted to have people who are willing to fund this to as a resource uh, for us but a resource for the ongoing community. So Canadians have been contributing to this as well as people from uh, contributing the most generous gift effort, which are the Tissues and organs from patients who are dying or have died uh, who clearly have died, but making arrangements before in an effort to contribute to this, so I see this as an ongoing. Project that will certainly survive long after me um, and they have these precious gifts and resources available to the Community for further research, so in the end, we actually have some way to slow down the course of what is and has been described as one of the most devastating diseases known to people.
1: Dr. Hayden, it's just been fantastic speaking with you about all these topics today. I just, I wanna end with one last question for you. And and that is, what would you hope your lasting legacy to be when when all is said and done?
2: Well, I would, you know, my, my hope and legacy would be that, uh, uh, that this commitment, uh, and it's really my family's commitment to Huntington disease because uh, I've had the support of my children uh, and my wife in uh, making these commitments. They always made they in place of some other commitments. Uh, and I would hope that somehow the work we've done has contributed to the alleviation of suffering of patients, both patients at risk, patients affected, and hopefully this could have impact beyond Huntington disease in other forms of neurodegeneration. That to me would be uh, a, a really the most important uh, a contribution and it's ongoing and it never ends.
1: Well, Dr. Hayden, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. I, I really appreciate your time and your insight and all, all the information you shared on the Proof HD study, um, as well as learning more about you know, your background and how you've gotten to where you are today.
2: Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. We very much appreciate what you do with HD Insights, giving us an opportunity in the community to talk with the community And so thank you for this very special privilege and opportunity. Thank you so much.
1: And thank you for listening to this episode of the HD Insights podcast. I truly felt inspired listening to Dr. Hayden recalling his days trying to help families of HD in South Africa of all descents, at the height of apartheid before we knew as much about the disease as we do now. I'd also like to thank him for providing great insights on prodopidine and information about the Proof HD study. If you'd like to learn more about the study and active study locations, please visit the current Clinical Trials page of the Huntington Study Group website at www.huntingtonstudygroup.org. Until our next episode, stay safe, be well, help one another, And thank you for listening to the HD Insights Podcast.
0: We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights Podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax-deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group.